We're going to continue as we started last week in our sermon series, this new sermon series we're doing through the book of Matthew called The Good News Kingdom. And uh, this morning we want to look at Matthew 1, 18 through 25 that depicts <clears throat> the miraculous birth of our King, the one who brings the good news kingdom. Christmas reveals a lot about our lives. How many of you look forward to Christmas? Hoping that it's going to be everything you've ever wanted it to be. It never quite lives up to it, but it's close enough that you still want it next year. Anyone like that? Some of you might be the opposite. Some of you may just dread it every single year. But what Christmas, what this season does is all of this excitement, all this expectation, it brings to the surface where you actually are. It reveals a lot about ourselves. It reveals a lot about the deep pains that are associated with our own lives and with our families. For others, it reveals a deep need to be valued by others. How many of you struggle buying presents because you have to find the perfect one? Now, don't hear me rightly on all this. It's not wrong to think through what to buy someone, okay? It's not wrong to try to figure all of that out. But if you struggle over and over again trying to find the right gift, why is that? It shows our deep need that we don't want other people to be disappointed in us. That if we buy them, you know, a pair of jeans instead of a t-shirt, life would be over. Like, it's just silly when you put it in that perspective, but it just shows our deep pains. It shows our deep needs, and we all have these deep needs and that, these deep pains. That we go through the holidays either trying to have the holidays cover up all of those pains and needs, or it exacerbates. It brings all of those needs and pains to the surface. And I want you to know that this is the very world that Jesus entered into. Mary and Joseph were not free from these deep needs, these deep pains. And the good news is that Jesus, <clears throat> in his incarnation, in his coming from heaven down to earth, entered into the same world that you and I experience on a daily basis. And he came to bring healing to your need and to your pain. If we could boil down the essence of Christmas, I think Matthew chapter 1 gets to it when we talk about the idea of Emmanuel. God coming to be with us. God entered into his own story. It is a crazy thought that the author of a story actually puts himself into the very story. And in Matthew chapter 1, God writes himself into the story in a miraculous virgin birth. If you have your Bibles, I want to read Matthew 1, 18 to 25 <clears throat> as we get started this morning. It says this, <clears throat> this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged or betrothed to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. 
Now, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Okay? If you've grown up in church, the virgin birth, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let me re-read that. Okay? Mar Joseph, pretend guy, you're married. Not even married, but back in your dating days or your engagement days. And you find that your spouse, your wife-to-be is impregnated, and you know it's not you. And all of a sudden, a voice comes to you, and it's the Holy Spirit, and says, calm down. It's okay, because that child is from me. How are you going to react to that? That's what it would take. That's what it would take. <laughs> right? Yeah. And what I'm, what I'm trying to get to see is like we read this, and sometimes I think we just miss the actual essence of what just took place in Matthew 1. That God actually is the one who conceived, not in a sexual way, but in a supernatural way, put this man-child, if you will, this God-man-child into this woman Mary. Verse 21, Mary, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, or Yeshua, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this that took place fulfilled, the Lord had said to the prophets, and here he quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This morning I want to talk to you about the significance and the importance of what this passage says about the virgin birth to our Christianity. So Jesus, we need you to come and meet with us and to show us the supernatural realities of what your birth, your virgin birth actually means. And so help us to rejoice that you have come to bring a good news kingdom to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew, in his birth account, uh, does not really go into all the details of the birth of Jesus. In fact, what Matthew really highlights in the birth of Jesus is not the details, but the supernatural aspect of how his birth actually came about. The focus is not on the birth, but on the conception. And his focus is that this miraculous conception is how this good news kingdom actually enters into this world. In fact, this virgin conception defines and shapes history. Larry King and the famous Larry King Live has made this statement. I would like to ask Jesus if, if he was indeed virgin born. Why? Because the answer to that question would define history for me.
Like, even Larry King wants to know, was Jesus virgin born? Because if he really was, it would mean something totally different about human history. So here we come into the story of Mary and Joseph. And now they are betrothed to one another. Betrothal, if you're not familiar with this ancient custom, is similar to our engagement idea but with a lot more legal binding engagement, reality to it. It's normally accompanied by a groom's payment of at least part of the bride price. Okay, and this is a very strange world that we live in. If you want to get married, guys, you've got to pay for your wife. That's a very strange, not just the wedding, but you actually have to pay for your wife. And you'd actually have to give a, a down payment of the bride price. Betrothal would actually last for most people about a year and meant that the bride and groom would be officially pledged to one another, but yet they'd not come together. They, uh, depending on where you lived in Jerusalem, sometimes you could actually be together and other times during that betrothal you could not be together at all. During this year, the husband's would ensure that he had his economic and financial things in place, his house would be built. And now the crazy part is, most of the time, the women were betrothed between the ages of 12 and 14, and Joseph was probably about 18 or 19. This was cultural custom, and that means both of my daughters would be married already, and I would be freaking out of my mind, right? <laughs> <clears throat> and this is the concept, you know, like this is the reality. Here is Mary and Joseph, probably an 18 to 20-year-old man who is now betrothed, has gone through this legal process through the parents, and, and most of the time they would actually ask the permission of the husband and wife at this time. It wasn't just kind of like a, a Jacob and, and Leah and Jacob Rachel story where, you know, you go through the whole marriage and you wake up the next morning and it's the wrong person. That doesn't happen. Okay, in this day, you could actually have some sort of choice in it. And ancient biographers praise the miraculous births of their subjects. Like, what I'm trying to get to, like, is this idea of being virgin-born is not, in some ways, very different from ancient worldviews. But in other ways, it's, in one way, it is totally, totally different than every other worldview in the day. There are close parallels, like ancient biographers of like the Greeks would tell stories of gods impregnating women. And so, I'll quote someone a little bit later, but uh, there's, you know, a common myth out there that Jesus wasn't the only virgin-born idea out there. There's these Greeks who, the gods, if you've read or know anything about like, I'm going to remember this, this series one day, Piercy Jackson Olympians, Right? Okay, thank you. If you've read that, or you're familiar with the Greek gods, they would come down and impregnate a woman, and there'd be this virgin-born individual. There'd be this virgin-born of a god coming and doing something and bringing life to this world. But the difference here is that our god did not do any sexual activity to accomplish what took place. It was very supernatural that God in His power gave a child to Mary in her womb. Now, the other fascinating thing is that Jesus' birth is not accompanied with a whole lot of like 
excitement. There's not a whole lot of parties. If you read about other famous births in this time period, even Jewish famous births in this time period, they'd be births filled with babies filling the house with light. That when the baby was born, there'd be this gigantic light. And yet, when Jesus is born, cows are still mooing, sheep are still doing what sheep do, and people are still sleeping. And so Matthew chapter 1 shows us this miraculous event of, of God just conceiving and giving birth, giving birth in a sense of life to Jesus in this woman, Mary. Now, maybe you're like me, and sometimes you're like, this is just crazy. This is like the weirdest thing I've ever heard. And surely there's many out there who might be watching or with us this morning that in some sense struggle with some of the, the supernatural claims of Christianity. Even if you're a Christian and you struggle with some of these supernatural claims, that's okay. You know why? Because it makes you human. Like to believe something as crazy as this without investigating and thinking through it actually is not healthy for us. And so, surely, there's nothing I can do to prove to you that empirically I can't take you to a science lab and, and show you that this actually happens. But what I can do is I'd like to challenge you and to say that for your rejection of the virgin birth, it takes just as much faith to reject it as it does to believe in it. Does that make sense? Because you can just say, you know what, I don't believe in it, it's crazy. But I want you to know that that itself is a faith statement. Beginning with the Enlightenment, which was a time period around the 1700s, there is this beginning, growing idea that you can't trust the supernatural. The only thing you can trust is your mind, your logic, and rationality. That's what began to go on, like the idea, you've heard the phrase, I think, therefore I am. Rene Descartes, maybe you've heard that phrase before. Like the idea back in the 1700s was, we're going to get with our minds and rationality and logic, begin to explain everything, and then all of the supernatural, mysterious things of earth will begin to go away. The premise behind this is that science will prove that there is no such thing as miracles. I'm gonna, yeah, and I'm just going to quote someone who says this. The mystical generation of Jesus, the virgin birth of Jesus, being done by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin will be classed as a fable. You know who wrote that in the 1700s? Thomas Jefferson, okay? The virgin birth will be classed as a fable. Now, what I'd like you to say is this. It is one thing to say that science is equipped to test for natural causes and cannot speak to others. It is quite another to insist that science proves that no other causes could actually exist. I put that on the screen for you because it might take you a minute to reflect and think through that. What can science prove? Only natural things. It can't prove that supernatural things can't happen. 
Does that make sense that? It can't do it. That's not the purpose of science. Science is to be able to take something in a test lab and to repeat it and to actually say, here is the laws and the rules of the created order. It can't test whether or not things outside of natural causes can actually happen. So for you to actually claim that you don't believe in the supernatural because science proves it, science doesn't prove it. You're just putting your faith in the fact that since science can't prove it, it can't happen. Which, when you begin to understand, they're both faith claims, right? You're both putting your trust that science can't prove it, or you're putting your faith that God actually did it. There's no experimental model for testing the statements. The supernatural cause is possible. The virgin birth is possible. Science cannot deal with that. So if there is a creator God, there is nothing illogical, there's nothing crazy about the possibility of miracles. So to be sure that miracles cannot exist, you have to believe that there is no God and that there is no article of faith. To disbelieve the Bible on the basis of miracles is a matter of presuppositional faith and not because of science. So I don't know if that helps you or not helps you, but I just want to encourage you that as you deal with the supernatural and some of the crazy claims of Christianity, I think we need to come back and actually say that for both of us, our presuppositions, our, our ideas are built on faith, what we believe to be true. So what actually happens in this virgin conception? What does it mean if this really happened, this is what God did, and it's a supernatural thing that God did, what actually does it accomplish and what does it mean? And the church struggled with this very question about the virgin birth. And the question that the church struggled with is the relationship between Jesus being what? God and Jesus being man. So if you follow church history... The first 300 years, well, the first 100 years, like scriptures were, you know, written and all the apostles ended up dying. And then like in the 200s and 300s, the church began to ask questions about what about the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so they began to write this Nicene Creed and this, this statement of what the Trinity was. But after they had developed the doctrine of the Trinity, the next doctrine that the church began to address was the doctrine of Jesus. The doctrine of what we would call Christology, or the idea of who Jesus is. And there was lots of views going on during the day of Jesus. One particular view was by a man named Apollinarius. Um, this is not Arianism, which is another heretical view if you're familiar with that, but Apollinarius believed that Jesus possessed only one nature, the divine nature, that Jesus did not possess humanity. He was only divine. Does that make sense? But then there was another view, like uh, Nestorian, another bishop from a city, a big city called Constantinople, and, and Nestorian from Constantinople believed that Jesus had two natures. He was God and man, but he also had two persons. He had like his divine person and his human person. So, 
with all of these crazy ideas getting swept out there into you know, this Roman Empire that was expanding and growing and the church was expanding and growing. They had to come and do business with what do we do with Jesus' virgin birth? Is he fully God and fully man? Or is he just fully God? Or is he just fully man? Or does he have two persons? And when we say two persons, we're talking about does he have two minds and two wills and two consciences? And I think what the scriptures would show us, and this is what the Orthodox, this is what the Council of Constantinople determines, is that Christ, the virgin birth, describes Jesus as having two natures as conjoined but not confused to form one person. Okay, when Jesus is in the garden praying to his father, please take this cup from me. How many people are talking? One, right? There's not two people talking in the garden. Jesus doesn't have two options and two wills. He doesn't have a human and a, and a divine person. There's just one person that makes up who Jesus is. But this one person does have a divine nature and he does have a human nature. So we can do the impossible Christian math that we've all done from our kids. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, right? Just like 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1. Like, this is Christian math. Okay, and this is where we get common core. I'm just kidding. But I mean, like, this is the idea, the math that we have to come is that the, the Council of Constantinople, the church, declared that the orthodox position of what it means to follow Jesus in the virgin birth is that he is 100% God and he's 100% man, and that they are not conjoined. What I mean by that is, like... Um, Let's see, you take apple juice and you take grape juice and you put them together, right? When you, when you put them together, what happens to all of those molecules and liquids? They like join together and become one new substance. Can you then pick apart the grape juice and the apple juice? No. What happens with Jesus is that the apple and the grape juice, don't, they don't come together and just form one. There's two natures. And that's what the, the language is. It's not conjoins. They're conjoined. They come together, but they're not confused. He doesn't lose when they come together any of his divinity. He doesn't lose any of his humanity. And so one of the core mysterious fundamentals of the faith of following Jesus is to believe that the virgin birth conjoins all of the divinity of God himself into a human person Jesus. I mean, could you think of other ways God could have done this? I mean, he could have created Jesus as a complete human. He could have just made Jesus be a normal human, come from Mary and Joseph in their union, in their marriage, and then just poured divinity on him. Right? He could have done that. God could have come into the world, you know, from heaven. He just could have, like, shown up one day. Fully God, fully man, as a 33-year-old man. And yet, why doesn't God do this? I think there's a couple reasons why God doesn't do this. Number one, I think it would subtract from our humanity. One of the big points in Scripture, especially in the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus empathizes with us. Why? 
because he experienced all the things that we have experienced. Okay, pain and trouble and need and death. You know who experienced all of that? Jesus. And so to do any sort of any other way is to actually detract from a human, from the humanity of Jesus, that detracts from his being able to sympathize with us and to empathize with us. And it would also make it difficult to see how he was truly God, since his origin would be like ours in every normal way. But is this doctrine really that important? In the 1920s, there is this great, let's just call it split, going on in the church. And there is these five fundamentals of the faith that the conservatives came up with that said, these are the fundamentals of the faith, that you cannot deny these. One of those four, five core fundamental uh, doctrines was the virgin birth. Now, that's not like if you deny the virgin birth, you're going to hell. I don't know. I'm not chancing it. I'm just kidding. But I mean, like, this isn't scripture, but this is like five fundamentals they came up with. And in the, in the recent years, there is a whole lot of discussion going on whether or not we have to believe core tenets of the faith to actually maintain our Christianity. So that here's one particular recent um, person. I'll leave him that. I'm, I'm going to be nice today who says this, what if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry? Okay, Larry's not very Jewish. He should have at least come up with like Simeon or something. <laughs> and archaeologists find Larry's tomb and they do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers through in to appeal to the followers of the religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of Jesus, whose gods had virgin births. That's a really long sentence that all means this. What if they just made it up to make it attractive to all the people around them because it was a normal custom of that day for someone really special to have a virgin birth? Does that make sense? He goes on to say, but what if, as you study the origin of the word virgin, you discover the word virgin, the Gospel of Matthew, actually comes from Isaiah, which it does, and then you find out that the Hebrew language at the time, the word virgin, could mean several things, which it does, and what if you discover that in the first century, being born a virgin also referred to a child whose mother became pregnant the first time she had intercourse? Okay, so, again, what's he asking? What if you just found out that the word virgin could have broader range than what you expect it to mean. And he finishes this quote by saying this, could a person still love God? Could you still be a Christian? Is the way of Jesus the best possible way? Or does the thing, whole thing fall apart if you lose the virgin birth? Are you with me on this? How important is this? I want to tell you this morning that everything falls apart. I think the virgin birth is that significant that without this doctrine of the virgin birth, everything in Christianity falls apart. Why? Let me, this is going to be a five-minute claim for why. I could do it for four hours, but I'm not. I'm going to summarize it for you. And then we're going to close with what that actually means for us. But I think if you lose the virgin birth, 
you lose the essence of Christianity. Why? Here's why. The story of the Bible tells us that God is on a mission to accomplish what? Redemption. I hope you get this by now. To create a world where he's going to come and dwell with us, correct? And who did he actually give that mission to do? Who did he give that to? Who did he entrust to accomplish that mission? Adam, right? Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were going to have children and great-grandchildren and millions of great-great-grandchildren. Like, he gave this mission to humans, did he not? This was humanity's mission, was to prepare the earth for the arrival and the dwelling place of God with man. And so he gave Adam this task. And guess what happened? Adam failed. But God promised in Genesis chapter 12, that Abraham, someone from you one day is going to come and bless the nations. He told Judah, someone from you is going to come and the rule of all the nations will be his. And he told David, someone from you will come and establish an everlasting kingdom. The Bible, the Old Testament is clear that there is a human who is coming who is going to bring and usher in God's kingdom. But the question I beg and I want to ask is, why did God have to tell Abraham that someone from his line would come? Why didn't he tell Abraham he would do it? Why did God have to tell Judah someone from his lineage would do it? Why did God tell David he couldn't do it? We all know the answer, right? Our kids just told it to us. Because they have sin in their hearts. So... Why does a virgin birth fall apart if you don't? Why does the story of God, why does Christianity fall apart? Because Jesus needed to be man, because God entrusted his mission to be fulfilled through humanity, but he needed to be God. He needed to be divine because the powers of darkness prevailed over every person. Jesus had to be fully God to overcome the powers of sin, Satan, and death that no one else could overcome. But he had to be man in order to actually fulfill the promises of God. Does that make sense? And so if you lose the virgin birth, you lose the essence of what it means that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. That he comes supernaturally he comes miraculously through God himself which means this we needed a God man to come bring us the good news kingdom we needed God to come and act on our behalf and the good news is that God came you were sitting in the prison cell and you could do nothing on the inside of that cell to get out of your pain, to get out of your darkness. You needed someone on the outside to come and unlock it. And this is what the Holy Spirit did when He came upon Mary and, and gave Mary a child. He said, this is how the good news kingdom is coming. The God-man is here. Emmanuel, God is with us. And notice in Matthew chapter 1, it says, they will call His name what? Emmanuel. Earlier, Mary and Luke, and earlier in Matthew 1, Joseph is told to name Jesus Emmanuel. 
What I'm trying to help you to see here is God told Mary and Joseph, you name him Emmanuel, but they will call him Emmanuel. Sorry, I just said that wrong. Mary and Joseph were told by the Holy Spirit to name this baby Jesus. But then it says later on in Matthew chapter 1 that they will call him Emmanuel. Who is the they? I don't think it's Mary and Joseph. When you look in the Old Testament context, you look at what Matthew is writing throughout the rest of his book, they is the messianic community. It is the people who follow Jesus. And you and I, we call him Emmanuel. God is with us. This truth has to come. This person has to come to be with us. And when He comes to be with us, He saves us from ourselves. He restores us to God so that we can be right with others. The good news kingdom is that God came for you. The good news is that God came to bring healing. God came to deal with your sin. And this Christmas, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus... I want us to remember that this birth was this supernatural event that God came from the outside to open up the door so that you could find peace and joy. So, Father, thank you for a few minutes to process this crazy, supernatural, miraculous birth that you came, you pursued us to give us a kingdom that cannot be shaken, to give us good news. So thank you for your work in sending Jesus and your work in sending the Spirit to us and your work in our lives. May we celebrate, Emmanuel, that God is with us this Christmas.